are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Friends, brothers, and sisters, uh, grab your Bibles if you have them. We're continuing on in the Gospel of Mark, and our sermon text is Mark chapter 15. We're nearing the end. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. If you're there, we'll start reading in verse 1. Give your attention to God's good word. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Oh, Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word now. So Jesus healed the leper, if you remember that. And then he said, see that you say nothing to anyone. And then Jesus raised a little girl from the dead to life. And if you remember this, he strictly charged that no one should know this. And Jesus gave hearing to a deaf man and then charged them to tell no one. And then Peter said, you are the Christ. And then Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus' messianic glory was revealed on the mountain of transfiguration And we heard the voice of the Father speaking to the disciples. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And then Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen. What's going on here in Mark's gospel? 
Well, secrecy. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has been deliberately laboring to keep his identity a secret under wraps. He tells his disciples to be quiet, and he he tells those who he has ministered to to be quiet about the great work that he has done. And as readers of Mark's gospel, this, this pattern, this motif of secrecy should create a tension in us. Why? Why should there be a tension? Well, because as readers of Mark's gospel, we know the truth about Jesus. Mark has been faithful throughout this gospel story to tell us who this Jesus is. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse of the book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then we move to Jesus' baptism, and we hear the voice of the Father, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And then we go to the transfiguration again. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And we hear Peter in Mark chapter eight confessing, you are the Christ. And Mark has designed this story so that we as readers cannot miss, cannot be confused about who this Jesus is. And whether you're an adult or a little child, the truth is right there ready at hand, you can't miss it. Jesus is the Christ, he is the son of God. And that's the source of the tension. We know the truth about Jesus, but everyone in Mark's gospel is confused and kept in the dark about the truth of Jesus. We know plainly who this Jesus is, but the characters are walking around perplexed and making a mess out of everything because they don't understand who this Jesus is. And as readers, the tension begins to get to us. I don't know about you, but often when I'm reading the Gospel of Mark, I just feel like taking the story up and and reaching into it and grabbing the actors, the characters by the collars and saying, don't you know who this Jesus is? It's so clear to me, don't you see it? He is the Christ, he is the Son of God. And as readers, we're left wondering, well, when will all of these characters, when will the public know who this Jesus is, truly? And this tension begins to be resolved in our text. The truth about Jesus is going to be published for one and all to hear. However, when we look into our text, our our verses this morning, this publication happens in the most unusual way. Think about it. When when news is made known in our day, it's a a big affair. There's a a, a news announcement and TV cameras come and they focus in on one person and the journalists swarm with questions. The news is made known. Or a social media campaign has started and and there are tweets on Twitter and Facebook posts and Instagram stories and they flood flood us with the news. But how is the truth about Jesus revealed? His kingship, his sonship, his messiahship? Well, it's revealed in a trial. It's revealed in the the mocking actions of bloodthirsty Romans, and it's ultimately revealed in a public execution. The glorious truth about Jesus that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the great King of Israel, is made known in the most humiliating of circumstances. And we have to understand that these circumstances are not a mistake, they're not a detour. Rather, these humiliating circumstances reveal what it means for Jesus to be truly the Christ, the Son of Israel. God. And so our plan for our time together this morning, our plan to understand this text, we're going to do two, two things. First, we're going to read the story, and we're going to pay attention to these circumstances, these details, and we're going to be asking, well, what do these details reveal about who this Jesus is truly? And then we're going to do a second work. We're going to, we're going to go back and we're going to think about all of these details, and we're going to say, well, how do these details lead me to worship Jesus? 
How do these details lead me to worship Jesus? And so we can begin by looking at our text, verses 1 through 20. And as we think about working through this text, we can break the text up into three scenes. Scene one, Jesus is before Pilate. Scene two, Jesus is before the crowd. And scene three, Jesus is before the soldiers. So let's look at scene one. We see that the story moves with haste. There's no time to waste. Look at verse one. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So what's going on here? Well, if we remember back to last week, the the legal experts of Israel and the spin doctors of Israel have been working all night and they're trying to get a coherent story to present before Pilate. And we we find in verse one that they've, they've settled on something. And what have they settled on? Well, we go to verse two. And Pilate takes the charge that the Israel, Israel's leaders have given him and he presents that charge to Jesus. Pilate says in verse two, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now we have to understand the seriousness of this charge that is presented to Jesus in verse two. There is one king and one king alone, Caesar. No one should rival his authority or power, and any rival claims to authority or power were taken seriously, especially in Judea. What we have to understand is in Judea, Judea was a a political hotbed. During the the time surrounding Jesus' ministry, freedom fighters would would come and go, trying to move the, the populace of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to revolt against Rome. And we can remember Jesus' warnings in Mark chapter 13. He was really concerned about his disciples not coming into league with these freedom fighters. Remember Jesus' warnings. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. And Roman rule did not look kindly on these messianic freedom movements. Rome would not idly watch demonstrations turn into protests and protests turn into riots and riots turn into revolutions. Rather, at the sign of unrest, they would would move in with strength and power to subdue it, to stamp it down. In fact, when we look at Pilate, this man who's questioning Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate was known to be a ruthless and violent man. Jesus himself knew about Pilate's violence. Many had told him in his ministry what Pilate had done to some of the Galileans, mixing their blood with sacrifices. So here's Pilate asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And what happens? Well, Jesus shows no interest in defending himself. Jesus mounts no legal defense here. He does not employ any legal strategy. Are you the king of the Jews? Well, Jesus lets the charge stand. He, He turns to Pilate and he says, you have said so. And this behavior perplexes Pilate. Here's a sentence worthy of capital punishment. It's presented before Jesus. And Jesus is surrounded by the chief priests and they're they're railing against him, they're slandering him. And Jesus, after speaking once, remains silent. He doesn't say anything else. He won't defend himself and Pilate is amazed. He says to Jesus, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. What a puzzling scene. What are we to make of Jesus' behavior before Pilate in this setting? Well, Mark wants us to see that Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. He is the servant of Isaiah 53 verse 7. 
Isaiah writes about Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Even more, Jesus is the forsaken king that David wrote about, that David prophesied about in Psalm 38, verses 11 through 14. David wrote about Jesus saying, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. And so here we have this first scene. Jesus is before Pilate and he lets the charge Stand, are you the king of the Jews? And we ask, well, what are we learning from these details that Mark has given us? Well, Mark is teaching us through contrast again. Mark likes to compare and contrast. And, and what do we learn through contrast? Well, we look at Israel's leaders and what are these men doing? Well, they're conspiring. They're spreading false reports. They're joining in with the godless nations. They trust in legal schemes. But then here is Jesus, and Jesus shuts his mouth in the midst of suffering, and he waits patiently on the God of Israel to rescue him. And the point cannot be any clearer what Mark is doing here. When we have Isaiah 53 in the background of our mind, when we have Psalm 38 in the background of our mind, we see that Jesus is the true leader of Israel. He's trusting the Lord. And we see that these chief priests are imposters. They're in league with sin and Satan. They're striving against God. And so in scene one, we learn through these details that Jesus is the true leader of God's people as written about in the Old Testament. So there's scene one. We move to scene two and, and here we find Jesus before the crowd. So as the story moves on from first scene to the second scene, we get the idea that, that Pilate is not particularly zealous about prosecuting the Lord Jesus. Jesus doesn't look like a, a man who's foaming with hatred against Rome. He hasn't led a revolt or a demonstration in the city. And most importantly, no violence has happened in Jesus' name. He doesn't seem like a real threat to Rome. But that's not the only reason that Pilate is slow to prosecute. Pilate is a savvy politician. And he recognizes that there's something going on among the Jews. Look at verse 11. Mark says, Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest delivered Jesus up. And so Pilate is playing the, the part of an antagonist. He's, he's, part, he's playing the part of the, the elder brother that wants to, to, wants to antagonize the younger siblings. And so here's Pilate. He desires to irritate and frustrate and thwart the plans of the chief priest. That would give him great delight if he could do so. And Pilate is given the perfect opportunity to do it. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And so at the feast, the crowd gathers before Pilate and they request their right for the release of a prisoner. And here Pilate sets before them Jesus, verse 9. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And so Pilate thinks he's, he's made the perfect plan. The chief priests want Jesus dead and he's going to irritate them. He's going to thwart their plans by, by getting Jesus off the hook. And as we look into the text, what do we find? Well, we find that Pilate is terribly outmaneuvered. Remember what the chief priests were doing all night. They were spinning stories about Jesus 
and they're doing their work of, of presenting these stories before the population of Israel. Verses 11 through 14. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And the, they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Pilate's beaten by the spin doctors of Israel. Their stories won the day. And so he has to give way to the chief priests or he himself risks starting a protest that he'll have to respond to with violence. And so what we find in the second scene is a terrible miscarriage of justice. Neither Pilate or the religious leaders of Israel care about truth or justice or righteousness. It's all about political expediency. But Mark doesn't want us to lament about first century politics. And through these details, through these circumstances, he wants us to see the truth about what's going on. So what do we learn from these details? Well, we learn three things. First, we, we understand the heart of Israel. We understand what's going on in the heart of the people of God. And we understand that their hearts are hardened against God. And the way the story unfolds is chilling. One would expect it would be the savage and idolatrous Romans who would be pursuing the death of Jesus. One would expect that it would be Pilate, this, this violent man, pursuing the death of Jesus to consolidate his own power in Judea. But it's not the godless nations. It's not the idolaters that are pursuing Jesus. It's the covenant people of God. It's the children of Abraham who seek to destroy Jesus, the beloved son of God. And, and the crowds chant reveal the, the, the status of their hearts. Crucify him, crucify him. And so through these details, we learn the heart of Israel. It's wicked, terribly wicked. Second, these details foreshadow the end of Israel. We see in this text that Israel is destined for great judgment. Israel is presented with a choice in this text. Two men are set before Israel to pick from. There is Jesus, and then there is this other man. And Mark tells us what we need to know about this other man in verse 7. Mark writes, and among the rebels in prison who committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And as we think about it, the difference between Barabbas and Jesus is stark. Here is Jesus. He is a man of peace. And there is Barabbas. And who is he? Well, he was a murderer who took part in the insurrection. A man of violence. And so who does the crowd pick? A man of peace or a man of violence? Well, they, they lust after the man of violence. They pick violence over peace. They pick the sword over the cross. And we have to understand this. With Mark 13 in the background of our minds, these people cement their share in the coming wrath of God. All that Jesus prophesied in Mark 13 will come to pass upon this faithless generation. Why? Because they refused the way of God, the way of peace, and they rather took the way of of the sword. And so in these details, we, we see the end of Israel foreshadowed as they pick Barabbas. And third, these details give us insight into the death of Jesus. Look at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And what a striking verse to consider. What's going on here? Well, the murderer is set free. 
Barabbas, by all accounts, deserved a Roman cross. He partook in the insurrection. He murdered someone. He should die. What happens? He walks away free. And who dies in Barabbas' place? Well, it's the man of peace. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who had done nothing wrong. And if we have eyes to see here, Mark is giving us a hint at what Jesus is going to accomplish in his death on the Roman cross. He's going to die in the place of a people who do deserve to die for their sins. So we've got the first scene, Jesus before Pilate. The second scene, Jesus before the crowd, and we're learning about Jesus. And now we come to the third scene, Jesus before the soldiers. And so in the first two scenes, the truth about Jesus is coming out. It's so interesting. Though Pilate and the Jews don't believe that Jesus is the king of Israel, they can't stop using that phrase. It keeps coming out of their mouths. Verse 2, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 9, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 12, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And through this irony, what's happening here? Well, the truth about Jesus is being aired in the public square for one and all to hear. Everyone is hearing that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And all of these statements are preparing us for the greatest act of irony. Look at verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of a purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. The irony is so thick in these verses. Here are these battle-hardened soldiers. And these men knew a king when they saw a king. And as Jesus is presented to them, they don't see a material of a king. They look at Jesus and they don't see the strength of a king. They look at Jesus and they don't see a man who commands respect as a king would. They don't see Jesus as a man who can conquer and carry a sword and a shield. And, And so what do these men do? Well, they look at Jesus and they say, you think you're a king? Well, we'll treat you like a king. We're going to make a fool out of you. But Mark wants us to go deep here in these verses. Through all of these gruesome details, the mockery, the insults, the spit, the shame, the beatings, we learn the truth about who this Jesus is. He is the king, but a king that no one expected. A king crowned not with gold upon his head, but with thorns upon his head. A king anointed not with oil, but with the spit of his enemies. A king encircled not with the praises of his subjects, but with insults. A king who bears not a royal scepter, but a king that is beaten with a rod. A king who does not sit on a royal throne, but is nailed to a Roman cross. And what Mark is doing is in these details is he's coming to us as readers and he's saying, don't you see it? Don't you see what they're doing? The truth is coming out. Jesus is the king, and this is exactly the type of king he is. He's not the king the Jews were expecting. He's the king that the Jews desperately need, a crucified king, a king who will come and save a people by his death, a king who has said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so there we have the story. We have the three scenes And as we look at these three scenes, we're we're left shocked as readers. 
The treatment that Jesus has received in these three scenes is gross and it's despicable. And as readers, we we come to the text and we should be saying something like this. Well, Well, hold on, stop. Don't you know who this Jesus is? He is the Christ, he is the Son of God. We have heard the Father speak to him. You are my beloved Son. We have witnessed his divine glory on the mountain of transfiguration. And we should be saying, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Christ should not be treated like this. But Mark is doing something. Remember that tension we feel? We know the truth about Jesus, but everybody in the Gospel of Mark doesn't. Well, the truth about Jesus is coming out, and and Mark's not just teaching the crowds. He's actually teaching us about Jesus, and he wants us to make this connection. Mark comes to us, and he says, yes, dear reader, Jesus is the Christ. You understand that. Yes, dear reader, Jesus is the Son of God. You understand that. Yes, dear reader, he is the Son of David. He is the great King of Israel. You understand that. But get this, you can only rightly understand this Jesus when you understand him through the cross. Jesus is not simply the Son of God, he is the crucified Son of God, and that's the only correct way to understand this Jesus. And so it's through these details, it's through these gruesome circumstances that we begin to learn, finally, the full identity of Jesus. So these details teach us, and we need this teaching, but these details also do a second work, and they should lead us to worship Jesus for who he is. All of these details are like calls to worship. They should move our hearts to treasure Jesus. They should move our mouths to speak gladly of who this Jesus is and what he has done. So what I want to do is set before you three reasons why you should worship Jesus from this text. And so the first reason is this. Consider the determination of Jesus. Think about this. There's Jesus standing before Pilate. And as Jesus stood before Pilate, there was plenty of opportunity for Jesus to plead his his cause. He could have stood before Pilate and he could have clarified his his meaning of, of, of a messianic kingdom. He could have clarified all of that to Pilate. Or he could have simply said, look at all of these men. You can tell that they hate me. I've done nothing wrong. And you get the sense if Jesus would have protested, he might have been able to maneuver his way away from the cross. He could have. But what's so interesting is he doesn't. He doesn't maneuver. He doesn't protest. He doesn't plead. He doesn't speak up for his cause. And what we find revealed in our text very clearly is the determination of Jesus. And this is so precious. Nothing could deter Jesus. Nothing could distract or discourage Jesus from the task that he had given. And what was his task? To save a people through his death. And believer, you have to understand this. Jesus saw your particular need. He saw your sin. He saw your neediness. And he went resolved. He went determined to go to the cross to accomplish your salvation. And the scriptures speak from beginning to end of the determination of Jesus and and these texts in the scriptures should fuel our our worship as we connect them to the the passion story. We're given texts like Isaiah 42 verse 4 which speak about the determination of Jesus. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. We're given texts like Isaiah 50 verses 5 through 7. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. 
Therefore, I have not been disgraced. And these words are so precious because we see it in our text. Therefore, therefore, I have set my face like flint. We see a determined Savior, and we ought to rejoice, and we ought to worship him because of it. He was determined to win our salvation. So first reason we worship Jesus, the determination of Jesus. Second reason, we worship because of the humility of Jesus. We know this text from the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. It's well known. Paul writes, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in those two verses, Paul gives us the words. He gives the adjectives to describe what Jesus has done. What does Paul say? He gives us these words. Servants. He's given us these words, humility, humbled himself. But what Mark does is he burns these words into our minds. He shows us the humility of Jesus. He paints a picture for us. And Mark tells us by painting this picture the extent of Jesus' humility. We see it. His body was pummeled with blows. His, His skin was torn to shreds. His head was scratched and pierced with thorns. His dignity was destroyed. His, his honor was disgraced. And believer, as you look into these 20 verses, you must know something about the humility of Jesus. Jesus made himself low so that you might be lifted up. And so when we look at these 20 verses, we should rejoice, we should worship Jesus for his humility. It is glorious. So we've got the first reason, the termination of Jesus. Second reason, the humility of Jesus. And we have one last reason to worship Jesus, and it's the love of Jesus. The reality is, Jesus didn't deserve anything that happened to him. Every blow, every stroke, every insult, every act of violence towards him was an act of injustice. Think about this. Jesus was the son of God. Being God, he deserved only worship and obedience. But Jesus doesn't receive any of it. Being the king of Israel, he deserved respect. And he doesn't get any of it. We have to ask, well, what drove the Lord Jesus to endure these trials? Why was Jesus so eager to humble himself? What was it that filled Jesus' determination? Well, the answer is that Jesus' heart was full of love. He was determined because he loved. He was humiliated because he loved. The Apostle Paul helps us interpret, helps us make sense of all of these details, all of these circumstances. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Paul saying? He's saying, when you look at all of these details, you need to see the love of Jesus for you in them. And so I ask you, believer, do you live in doubt today? Do you live in anxiety? Do you live in insecurity? Do you live in depression? Well, you must know the love of Jesus. And if you are faithful to look into this text, you will find the love of Jesus. It's right there. A love that you could have never imagined possible. Charles Wesley wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And as we look at these details, that's where our hearts should go. That's what our hearts should be saying. Amazing love. This is, this is amazing. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? I cannot wrap my mind around it. 
And believer, you must understand this. Every blow, every stroke, every insult endured by the Lord Jesus was an act of love towards you. So believer, consider these words and let them subdue all of your doubts. Be faithful and set this text in front of your eyes day after day and let these words drive away all of your worries in this life. Dive into these words again and again and bid your anxieties gone because when you dive into these words, you will see the love of Christ for you. And every time you open up this text and every time you read these details, the truth is proclaimed to you. If you are in Christ, Christ Jesus has loved you. He has loved you. So what must we do as God's people? Well, we should rejoice and worship him. We should sing with Charles Wesley, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we're so thankful that you have given us all of these details. All of these details, and we need them. We pray now that you would give us eyes of faith, that we might see the glory of Jesus revealed in these details. We want to see and we want to know more of the determination of Jesus. He set his face like flint. We want to know more of the humility of Jesus, how he emptied himself and how he served us. We want to know more about the love of Jesus how he gave himself for us and loved us perfectly in our need. Father, we ask for faithfulness that we might pursue these words, that we might be faithful to set them before our eyes again and again and again. Father, would you show us the glory of Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.